0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. In this show, we discuss topical foreign policy issues. I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career, often with digressions about historic foreign (laughs) policy events in which their life and career intersected. And we cover often overlooked issues in global affairs. If you want to learn more, visit GlobalDispatchesPodcast.com. And now on with the show. It has been a tumultuous week in Israel and Palestine. On the same day that the United States formally opened its embassy in Jerusalem, dozens of Palestinians were shot to death by Israeli soldiers along the border between Gaza and Israel. That incident along the border fence was part of a broader Palestinian protest movement that has gained steam in recent months. The movement is known as the Great Return March. In it, Gazan protesters approach and seek to breach the border fence that separates Gaza from Israel, ostensibly to return to lands that were expropriated by Israel during the country's founding as a Jewish state. Clashes have ensued, including the shooting deaths of Palestinians by Israeli soldiers. On the line with me to help put this latest protest movement in context is Youssef Munayer. Yusef brings a unique perspective to this issue. He is the executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. He is also an Israeli citizen, an American citizen, and a Palestinian. We kick off discussing the unique history of Gaza and also the origins of this new protest movement. And And here, Youssef offers, I think, a helpful explanation for why this protest movement is resonating so deeply among Palestinians beyond Gaza. We also discuss the complex issue of the right to return before turning to a conversation about how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is interpreted through American domestic politics. My purpose with this interview was to learn for myself and to give you, the listeners, some deeper context for understanding the events of this past week in Israel and Palestine and to learn how this new protest movement may evolve in the coming weeks and months. And needless to say, how it evolves will have a profound implication on events throughout the Middle East and and throughout the world. So to that end, I hope you find this conversation useful and explanatory. And now here is my conversation with Yusuf Munair, the Executive Director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Eslanyan from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: The Gaza Strip is a tiny piece of land that historically had been part. Of Palestine. Uh, And, you know, even though uh, the city of Gaza itself uh, has been inhabited and civilized for (laughs) millennia, uh, the vast majority of people who live in Gaza today in the Gaza Strip, some, you know, uh, 2.2 million people, the vast majority of them are not from Gaza itself or from the, the Gaza Strip. The vast majority of them are from towns and villages uh, outside of the Gaza Strip in what is today Israel, who were ethnically cleansed uh, in 1948 primarily uh, during the uh, war uh, between uh, Israel and the Palestinian uh, uh, people and the uh, Arab states after May 15th of 1948. Uh, After the creation of the state of Israel, of course, and at the end of the armistice agreements between Israel and the Arab states, uh, the refugees from these towns and villages were denied return uh, to the the places that that they are from. And so they uh, essentially became a longstanding refugee population living in limbo, first in sort of traditional, you know, tent-dominated refugee camps that became very urban in nature over time uh, as you know their repatriation continued to be denied Uh, and so what you have today in the gaza strip uh, is uh, you know one of the most densely populated places in the world um, uh, where you have uh, overcrowding particularly in the refugee camp areas Um, and in any situation like that you're going to have of course you know, a strain on resources, uh, but what has uh, exacerbated this uh, over time uh, is, of course, the military occupation in 1967, but also a set of uh, policies of siege, which began in 2004, 2005, and continue through this day. Uh, Those policies dictate what gets in and what gets out of Gaza. Which Israel continues to control, um, and they have resulted in a humanitarian situation on the ground, uh, which the United Nations has characterized as, um, you know, uh, not likely to be able to be uh, sustainable for life beyond 2020. Mm-hmm. And this was a report. That the United Nations have put out several years ago. Of course, now we're at 2018. And, and I should and so, say,
0: just a few weeks ago, I had a representative from UNRWA, the UN humanitarian agency that um, provides humanitarian relief and schooling for much of the occupied territories and, and and for Palestinians living in surrounding countries as well. And we talk about that sort of humanitarian crisis in in a bit uh, more depth. Um, I'm sort of hoping to 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 sort of learn a little bit about the sort of origins of the march to return protests i mean these are the protests in which just this week culminated in the shooting deaths of um, dozens of, of palestinians by israeli soldiers at the border fence where did this protest movement begin this this sort of current iteration of this protest movement
1: yeah that's a that's a great question and actually there have been some uh good articles on this written by some of the protest organizers uh in recent uh weeks um, uh, including you know one of the key activists who um, essentially started the idea and you know what he talks about there uh is you know kind of uh just thinking about, uh, the, uh, decision by the Trump administration, uh, to, you know, recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and move, uh, its, uh, its embassy, uh, and, you know, thinking about how much, you know, uh, he as a Palestinian in Gaza would love to be able to go to Jerusalem. And, uh, he was looking out over the fence and thinking about how, this is, this is the land of his fathers and grandfathers, and he can't even cross over that fence. And then he thought, well, maybe there's something we should do to, to organize around that. Uh, And so they, um, they started this, this campaign, this organized campaign of a sustained uh, presence at the uh, fence uh, that Israel has placed around the Gaza Strip uh, to, uh, protest there and demand, uh, their rights, their rights, of course, uh, to live freely, uh, and also their rights to be able to return to the towns and villages that they were from. They, uh, started this campaign on March 30th, uh, which is a very important date for Palestinians. And it's particularly symbolic. Um, in this instance, March 30th is land day. Uh, and land day, uh, is a day that Palestinians commemorate the, uh, events, uh, in 1976, actually inside Israel, when Palestinian citizens of Israel in the Galilee were protesting land confiscation, uh, and several of the protesters were shot and killed by, uh, Israeli forces responding to the protests. And so, um, you can you can see that you know the 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 symbolism of this is not only about you know the importance of uh of protest for one's rights uh but also brings in a dimension a Palestinian dimension which is not limited of course to Gaza or the West Bank but also includes Palestinian citizens of Israel and uh it was supposed to continue until May 15th which is the day on which Palestinians mark the Nakba the Nakba is uh the uh experience of dispossession that the vast majority of the native inhabitants of Palestine uh experienced during the period of 1947 to 1949 when most of them became refugees and were denied return. So so that was the the framing of this and I think it's imp- I think it's important to focus on the framing particularly as it was it was uh conceptualized by the organizers because there was a message in this framing i think to the world but also to palestinians as well which is which has really gone under discussed and and that message i think which was very valuable was here's the gaza strip which is this you know isolated piece of land that is going through all of this suffering and the world has essentially forgotten gaza and many people would even say that other Palestinians have forgotten Gaza. And nobody would have blamed the Palestinians in Gaza if they came out for a protest and focused exclusively on the concerns of Palestinians in Gaza and not elsewhere. But they very deliberately framed their protest as a pan-Palestinian protest to, I think, uh, send a message internationally and also to other Palestinians that you know, even if the world may have forgotten Gaza, we have not forgotten everybody else. Um,
0: to what extent, or or what has been the role of of Hamas in in these protests? I mean, Hamas won elect Gaza elections in Gaza in, in two thousand six. The Israeli government and and just yesterday, you know, Nikki Haley at the United Nations, you know sort of blamed or, or attributed this protest movement to uh, Hamas. And, and um, I'm sort of wondering the extent to, or how you might describe Hamas's relationship with this protest movement.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, Hamas is the sort of de facto authority on the ground in the Gaza Strip. Um, they are a Palestinian faction among many Palestinian factions. Um, in the Gaza Strip, they are the dominant faction uh, militarily at, at least in terms of uh, in terms of control. Uh, politically, you know uh, as far as Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza go, you know they don't have a plurality of uh, support um, uh, so uh, you know there are many different factions that have a degree of support uh, and in fact, when you look at public opinion, polling of Palestinians in Gaza, what you see is the single largest political affiliation uh, upwards of 40% is none of the above. Uh, And so while they exist as part of the Palestinian political spectrum, you know, characterizing them as, as somehow dominant, I think is, um, is misleading. You know, that being said, because they control the situation on the ground. They could certainly have stopped these protests if they wanted to. But I think Palestinians would object to that very much. Uh, and the reason is because whether you are, you know, uh, uh, someone affiliated with Hamas or Fatah uh, or any of the other political factions or none of the political factions, the grievances being represented at these protests are pan Palestinian grievances. Uh, And so, uh, yes, Hamas and members of Hamas are part of Palestinian society. But before they're members of Hamas, they're also Palestinians. They're also human beings who have human rights. Uh, And so, you know, they're going to be part of this and members of every faction are going to be part of this and members of no faction are going to be uh, part of this. Um, So, you know, the political leaders of Hamas have, you know, made a point of showing up at the uh, rallies. As I think political leaders, you know, anywhere would make a point of showing up at the, you know, single largest mobilizations, um, in, uh, in, in your neighborhood. Um, but, um, I don't think it, it's, it's fair to characterize this as a Hamas protest. Uh, it is a Palestinian protest. And, 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 you know, let's be clear about, uh, you know, something for, for, for perspective here. Hamas did not come into existence until the 1980s, right? Palestinians were protesting the denial of their rights by Israel long before Hamas existed, long before the PLO existed. And in fact, before even the state of Israel existed, there were Palestinians that were uh, protesting against Zionism and what the creation of a Jewish state would mean for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, Protesting for your your rights as a Palestinian is not something that Hamas or any other faction uh, has a monopoly of.
0: So can, can you um maybe t- take a step back and and um you know explain what is implied by the right of of return, which is uh, sort of the you know, I suppose basis upon which this protest this new protest movement has uh, emerged. I know this has been an issue that's sort of stymied um, the two-state solution uh, parts of, of, of the, 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 the talks. But can you just sort of explain what is implied, what is meant by the,
1: the right of return? So, I mean, the right of return is actually super, super uh, simple. Uh, it is something that the vast majority of the world practices every single day. Uh, at the end of the day, they go home. Uh, for Palestinians uh, in the, you know, displaced in the war in 1948, uh, they were never permitted to go home. After the hostilities ended, when, when armistice agreements were signed, the refugees were never allowed to repatriate. In fact, many refugees who attempted to do so, even returning peacefully, were shot by the Israeli military in the 19, late 1940s and early 1950s. I mean what we are seeing today in Gaza has been going on for a very very long time and the roots of it go back uh, to uh that period. So, so the 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 right to and 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 this is this this is I think it's it's is very important because the right to return is a human right and it's very clear in the UN declaration of human rights uh, where it states rather plainly two things. It says that people have a right to move freely within their own state, okay? And the language here is really important. And the second clause of, of that point is people have a right to enter and exit their own country. And I think it's so critical here to focus on the language because in the same clause you see that the, the framers use the word state in the first part to talk about internal movement but use the word country to talk about entering and exiting in the second clause, precisely because it is in times of war when you have massive displacements and the political outcome of those displacements might be uh, the creation of new political formations, the creations of new states. That does not negate the rights of the people to return to the land which they are from, regardless to what state currently exists there.
0: And I should say, on on Twitter this week, you wrote, I think, a, a really compelling, um, you know, mini essay thread on your own family's history dealing with these issues. Um, and I was wondering if you could just tell that history briefly, because I think it is very, I think, illustrative of um, the Palestinian experience. And I should say you kind of bring a unique perspective to this whole conversation being, you know, both an American citizen and an Israeli citizen and a Palestinian. Um, So can you just sort of tell your your sort of family story briefly?
1: Sure. Uh, and, you know, for those interested, I, I uh, would encourage them to check out the hashtag, uh, on Twitter, my Nekba Story. Uh, Nekba is spelled N-A-K-B-A, my MyNekbaStory. Uh, and Palestinians have been using this on the occasion of, of Nekba Day, uh, to talk about their own family experiences, uh, with, uh, the Nekba and what it meant for them. And so, yeah, I, I put together a thread just talking about my maternal grandfather's experience, uh, with, uh, with the Nakba and you know, what had happened to them, they had in the early 1940s bought, uh, a house in the town of Ramleh which is, um, you know, in the center uh, of the country sort of, uh, between Jerusalem and the coast. And, um, during 1948, the town next door to them, uh, was uh, besieged by uh, Israeli forces, uh, and the orders had been given uh, by uh, the um, Israeli leadership to drive out the inhabitants of uh, both uh, the towns, both where my grandparents lived and and the neighboring town. Um, Massacres took place uh, in the neighboring town. Um, An artillery shell was fired into uh, a mosque where a number of people were seeking refuge, uh, and uh, a couple hundred people were killed uh, there uh, and um, uh, ultimately, after three days, the town uh, fell, and the inhabitants of the town were forcibly evacuated um, and 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 forced to basically march uh, to the Jordanian lines um, during which time uh, many people uh perished uh on on that march seeing what took place next door uh, the people in my grandparents town uh you know knowing they might uh face a very similar fate uh decided to uh cooperate with the forced evacuation uh instead of put up a fight uh and they were supposed to be evacuated from uh depots at the outskirts of the town And so they were all rounded up and and brought over there. And when they got there, what they were told at that point was that the Jordanians were no longer taking refugees at this time. And so they got stuck. Um, Many of their family members had already left. uh, And they ended up uh, as part of the very small minority that remained inside. They became classed as what's called IDPs, internally displaced persons which meant that they were still inside the, the the newly formed state, but not living on the land that belonged to them. And they ended up being resettled into part of the old city in the town, which is very, very old, that became ghettoized by the Israeli uh, military. And so my grandfather lived you know, down the road from the house that he actually owned uh, in very squalid conditions uh, while Jewish settlers had taken over his home uh, and uh you know he was unable to go back to his own house, even though he lived in the same town and never actually left and so over the course of twenty years, um, he uh, had you know quite persistently nagged the local court uh and at one point even dragged the local judge down. To uh, the old city to see the very small, you know, place that he was living in with a few different families in the ghetto, and the house that you know Jewish settlers were now living in that actually belonged to him, and asked him how is it how is it fair that this is this is happening? Uh, and you know, after very very persistent effort, he was finally able to return under the condition that he bought out the current tenant the current jewish settler that was living in his house
0: so he had to buy his and, own house twice basically so
1: he had to basically he bought his own house twice just just to continue living in it um and i mean you know and, and the thing about this is you know this is our own personal story the, the 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 thing about it is that that they were among the lucky ones that were actually able to remain that were actually able to go back the vast majority of people you know, as as insulting and dehumanizing as being forced to buy your own house back from someone who essentially took it from. you.
0: And that's you know the um, reason why today you know you are an Israeli citizen as opposed to a Palestinian yes, refugee.
1: Yes, exactly. But my, many of my family members, some of whom I have never met and probably will never meet, ended up in Gaza, ended up in the West Bank, ended up in Jordan, ended up in, in all kinds of places. So the what my grandparents returned to was not the society that they left. What they returned to was a society where they were uh, immediately minorities and disliked minorities in a state that viewed them as demographic threats. And for the first 20 years of the state, uh, Palestinians who were in Israel, who were citizens of Israel, were uh, ruled under a system of martial law, which many people don't know. Um, And so, uh, you know, while they were fortunate to be able to return to their home, the existence that they continued to live um, was uh, a very dismal one. So
0: I, I wanted to bring us to the, the uh, events of, of this week, specifically the um, embassy uh, opening in, in Jerusalem. Um, yes. I watched the, the event and I sort of watched it as an act of domestic political theater meant for American consumption. Uh, you know, you had, um the, the single largest donor to Republican causes there to Republican party, Sheldon Adelson was there along with, you know, this wackadoo, uh, preacher who, you know, is popular among, you know, right wing, uh, Christians in, in the United States. And, you know, to me, it's sort of that, that sort of event, uh, in Jerusalem, um, typified something that I've been thinking about for, for a while. And I'm not like alone in thinking that, you know, the, the events that, that, the, the peace process such that it exists or to the extent that it exists at all is a matter of American domestic, um, politics. That it, you know, that, that this, the Arab Israeli conflict and, and the Palestinian Israeli conflict cannot be solved absent some major changes in American domestic politics. And I'm, Wondering one if if you sort of agree with that uh, proposition, and two, sort of what what do you see sort of shifting in American domestic politics on the Israel Palestine question?
1: Yeah, that, that's a, a great question. I I think you're absolutely right about the the you know the the, the choreography and the stagecraft, and and I would point out that this started. Uh, you know when when the embassy uh, decision was initially made, if you recall when it was announced in December, uh, the setting for it was uh, in a room in the White House where you know the president was uh, seated there with his vice president behind him, Mike Pence, who is you know much much closer to the you know religious right and evangelical community in the United States, and it was set you know in front of a Christmas tree. And much of the, you know, the narrative uh, around the decision to move the embassy has been couched in this, you know, religious, ideological, um, uh, you know, conversation about fulfilling some sort of prophecy. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's, it's bonkers, you know, if you ask me. Um, but but that's been very much part of the, the conversation. It's been intentional. Uh, if you, you know, look at uh, not just the conversation about it and sort of right wing media, but also who they had come and speak at the embassy opening. You know, the, the preachers that delivered the, um, uh, you know, the uh, addresses and the invocations and so on, um, you know, are extreme, you know, right wing evangelicals who have said some of the most uh, horrific things about people who, you know, don't share their same religious views. Um, uh, you know, including Jews by the way, who they've, you know, they've said are all going to hell and 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 all of all of these kinds of things. These these are the these are the preachers that were brought, you know, to to the um to the celebration with great fanfare. And uh I think all of it was really choreographed as a message, you know, to the base, the Republican base, the evangelical base, which is uh, of critical importance to the the president. As bizarre as that sounds for a president like Donald Trump to have the kind of support of a, of a religious community like the evangelicals, that's, what, that's what's really going on here. Um, so yet, yeah, you know, well,
0: yeah, you also you you saw sort of laudatory comments from, you know, top Democrats who are not right wing Christians like Chuck Schumer, uh, who and and also like Senator Cardin is as well. And, and Bob Menendez, these are, you know, top kind of foreign policy uh, Democrats who did not condemn the uh, the move. And you know, who, you know, didn't necessarily cheer it on, although Chuck Schumer sort of cheered it on, but the other they didn't necessarily condemn it. Now I'm just like sort of wondering if you're seeing any part partisan shifts in sure. how the um how domestic poli- domestic American politics is approaching Israel and, and Palestine more broadly. I mean to me at least it seems that the only kind of elements of, of US politics that are currently sort of showing any sort of like balance or, or sympathy towards Palestinians seem to be more left-wing elements of the Democratic Party like you saw Bernie Sanders and others you know you know members of 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 Congress sort of issue statements but not like the mainstream of of the Democratic Party such as it exists today
1: yeah uh, that that's a, a very important question i'm glad that you bring up chuck Schumer. uh there there are a few examples like that of democrats who had sort of been out front in 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 cheering this on but but they are rare uh, and you know, I think a very important sort of indication of the direction that the wind is blowing now took place earlier this year when the president, uh, President Trump, uh, was delivering the State of the Union address um, in February, I believe it was. Uh, and you know, the State of the Union address is is well known uh, for featuring you know rounds of applause that get one side of the chamber to stand up and has the other side seated. Uh, and there's uh, occasionally uh, one or two issues which get everybody to stand up at the same time and and gets bipartisan applause. And historically, the Israel applause lines and support for Israel applause lines has been one of those exceptions that gets everybody to stand up and clap. But if you go back and look at the video of uh, Trump speaking at the State of the Union address, uh, he, he, you know, uh, very triumphantly proclaims this applause line about how he finally moved the American embassy to Jerusalem and so on and so forth. And of course, uh, all of the Republicans in the room stood up. The Democrats were all seated. Most of them were not clapping, except for Chuck Schumer, who was nervously looking around. <laughs> and I think it's a very, very important indication of, you know, where where things are going, and there's, there's a, a few different reasons uh, for that that I think are, are worth discussing. Um, you know, Things are changing domestically uh, in terms of public opinion here on this issue, um, and you're, you're seeing that a lot in certain demographics, not just political demographics, but also particularly among the younger generation, uh, which has come of age knowing a different version of the story of Israel than their parents came to know when they came of age. Their parents knew the Israel of 1967, or the story of Israel in 1967, or the story of Israel in 1948, which was based on this idea that Israel is a David facing an Arab Goliath, that Israel is in need of uh, support just to, just to survive, and uh, so on and so forth. But this generation has come of age seeing the Israel of Lebanon in 2006 and seeing the Israel of Gaza in 2008 and in 2012 and 2014 and the Israel of of the Gaza massacre yesterday. And they look at that and they see something that they're, they don't want. They don't want to support. You know, they 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 don't feel comfortable with. And, you know, so there is this divide that is taking place between people who are looking at the world through a lens of values and people who are looking uh, at the world through a lens of tribal commitment and ideology. And I think that, you know, is a divide that is overlapping in our, uh, uh, overlapping our political divide here in the United States more and more today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see among Republicans the commitment to Israel today is higher than it's ever been, but lower than it's ever been among Democrats. Uh, And uh, so, so, so that reality on the ground is a big reason for that. Another is because of the politics in Israel itself, the relationship that they've had, the very combative relationship that they had with the Obama administration, and the Clinton uh, which,
0: administration before that.
1: Well, and the Clinton yeah. administration before that. But I think I think that the way that you know the uh, the Netanyahu government dealt with the Obama administration uh, really rubbed a lot of Democrats the wrong mm-hmm. way, and I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the discourse uh, around criticism uh, of President Obama. For his perceived lack of commitment to Israel, was very racially coded in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and also, I mean, I, I
0: should say, like, like the 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 prime example of Netanyahu undercutting America, you know, uh, Obama's political priorities is when he gave a speech before Congress railing against Obama's signature foreign policy achievement, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, you know, but, there's, you know, that's th- just like a very blatant, um, example of of a foreign leader of of the Israeli government sort of messing with U.S. And, domestic and politics, it, and and aligning himself, yeah,
1: exactly. It was done, in cahoots, yeah, exactly. it was done it was, in cahoots yeah. with the with with the yes. Republicans, and you know, I don't I, I don't think we can ignore the narrative that undergirded a lot of that, right? Which was this very suggestive, racially coded dog whistles about why does, why does Obama want to throw Israel under the bus? Mm -hmm. Why does Israel love the Islamic Republic of Iran? And it it comes from the same corners that you hear all kinds of other questions about President Obama. Mm -hmm. Is he, is he really a Christian or maybe he's a secret Muslim? You know, I mean, these are the kind of narratives that kind of came together in the conspiratorial cesspool that was the right wing. During the uh, you know uh, Obama uh, uh, administration, uh, that um, you know really framed a lot of the you know sort of pro-Israel anti-Obama discourse. Uh, and I think for a lot of people who looked at President Obama, and, and, and you know there's no shortage of, of of criticism that one can have of President Obama, especially for his Israel policy and other things. But for many people who looked at him as a harbinger of change, particularly change in terms of the direction that the United States was going when it comes to minorities and when it comes to racial equality and so on, those kinds of attacks on President Obama, that kind of discourse rubbed people who wanted to see that kind of change the wrong way. Uh, and I think it it created an alienation. Uh, it, it furthered an alienation uh, with uh, with Israel because of that. so
0: like how do you see the next several months of of what's happening with these you know
1: right to return protests evolving? Uh, i I don't think they're going away anytime soon. Um, you know i I think uh, there's a chance that they're going to continue beyond. Uh, this uh, period, uh, I think, also the the uh, organizers um, and, and others have seen that they are um, they're effective. Uh, you know, the, the protests are by nature a provocation. Uh, they are, you know, supposed to force people and provoke people into asking moral questions about what is going on. Uh, and in, in the many historic instances of protests that we are very familiar with here in the United States, whether it's the civil rights protests or the anti-war protests, the, you know, the, the, the you know, um, march in Alabama or, or, or the, the protests against the, the Cambodia bombing in Kent State, the answers to those moral questions became a lot more clear after people saw the response to the protests. And the way that they were handled, and I think that um, Palestinians are becoming more keenly aware of that than ever before, and I think that's an important thing um, uh, and I think they realize that you know they they have a they have a, a a disadvantage that they have to overcome as as Palestinians because many people in the West and particularly um, don't fully accept the humanity of Palestinians. There's been a lot of systematic dehumanization that has gone on for decades. And so, uh, you know, Palestinians really have to go the extra mile to show the extent to which the policies that the state of Israel is imposing uh, are uh, unjustified. Uh, and sometimes that means protesting, uh, even if you know that your life is on the line. Um, And, you know, I I think it is very likely that we are going to see more uh, of these tactics in the future in Gaza and elsewhere.
0: Uh, All right. Well, Yusuf, thank you uh, so much for your time. This was very helpful.
1: Sure thing. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Yusuf. And uh, again, as I mentioned at the outset, I, I... thought this was a, a useful conversation for understanding some of the broader context uh, around events that will have a profound impact on global affairs over the next weeks or, or months. Whether you agree or not with uh, Youssef's perspective on, on these questions, it is nonetheless, I think, vital to understand that perspective in order for you to have a better sense of how world events may may shake out over the next few weeks and months. All right. See you next time. Bye.